Alright, have a seat, have a seat. Okay, so are we supposed to speak about uh, food, right? Eating, yes? Vegetarianism, eating, you are the eaters, right? Not sure which aspect of the subject interests you, but um, there's a lot of, lot of things to say here. So I think I'd rather respond to the issues of interest to you, and if you ask questions, I'd be happy to... Uh, answer, but let's begin by let me uh, lay out some of the issues involved here and some of the Jewish approach to this subject, very deep, very deep area, many applications. And then please stop me if something's not clear or if you have questions on any particular aspect that I'm able to um, answer, I'll be happy to, to try. Many aspects. What does eating mean? Why do we eat? Why was the world created in such a way that we need to that we need to eat? Um, what is uh, the meaning of kosher food? Why some things can be eaten, some things shouldn't be? If uh, why does that apply to Jews and not to non-Jews? What about the health aspects? What's Judaism's take on things like food additives and colorings and um, health things? Are you required to be concerned about that? Are you not? What about vegetarianism? <coughs> Why is it okay to kill animals and eat them? Is there something wrong with that? Is it okay to be a vegetarian if you're Jewish and you want to be? There are many, many questions here. <coughs> Did I cover most of the things of... Let's begin maybe with the concept of eating altogether. Many strange things about it. First of all, we are needing to eat to sustain ourselves. <clears throat> Secondly, eating is a peculiar activity because it is absorbing material from the world, which is both pure and nutritious and also, and also not. You know that what the body does with food is, <clears throat> it separates that which is nutritious and necessary and then excretes the remainder as extremely offensive offensive process, right? Human being, very strange. Human being is a, is a creation that is holy. You have a, a holiness, a tremendous sanctity, the human being. That's the essence of why killing someone is wrong. It's because of the great sanctity of the human being. And yet this inner being, which is so elevated, is housed in a vessel which is very problematic. The human body... It's very problematic. It is very beautiful from one perspective, but it's very problematic from another. It's, it's finite, it's limited, it's given to decomposition and disintegration, right? If you don't take care of it, it smells bad. It excretes waste in a very offensive, within one's own body is contained, very offensive excrement. It's not just close to one, but within oneself, right? Very strange thing that. What does that mean? Why, why are we created that way? 
the deep sources say that when Adam was created, right this week we read about the creation of man and woman, when Adam was created there was no excretion. There was no excretion. The body didn't excrete. He ate only food that was pure and the food was completely what's called it's called nivla ba'evarim in Hebrew. Nivla ba'evarim. The food was absorbed completely into the organs and limbs of the body. There was no process of excretion. In fact, according to Kabbalistic sources, it wasn't possible to excrete because there was no back. Right? Are you all? I'm sure you're all accomplished black belt Kabbalists. Yes? No? No? You're not? As any Kabbalist knows, when Adam and Eve were created, they were created as one androgynous being fused at the back. Right? Adam and Eve, there were two faces. One was male, one was female. And there were only two fronts. There was no back. Right? The back is always the place of spiritual darkness. Right? The front is always the side of spiritual elevation. That's why the Hebrew word for panim, which means the face. Who speaks Hebrew here? Anybody? Yes, no. The Hebrew word for face, which is panim, is exact pan in Hebrew means an outer face, right? Pan panim, right? Is an outer face of something, and yet the same word in Hebrew is pnim, which means shows you the inside, right? The same root in Hebrew, which means outside, means inside. <coughs> Isn't that amazing? Anyone out there? <laughs> Maybe you didn't eat this evening. Did you have dinner? Did you sustain yourselves? That's called davar v'hipucho, right? Yeah, one thing and it's opposite in the same place. Panim is the outside and pnim is the inside because the face is the place where you see the inside. Right? You see into the... But the back is the opposite. The back is the place of non-identification. The back is called in Hebrew achor, which is the same word as acher, which means otherness, strangeness, foreignness, right? You, you, you cannot recognize a person. From the face is a place of relationship and re- recognition, unique uniqueness of the human being. From the back is the is the opposite. The back is the side of darkness, unrecognizability, foreignness, and excretion. The front is the side of relationship and purity. That's called achoraim in Hebrew. You know that in Hebrew, idolatry, <coughs> the worship of idols, is called avodat gilulim, the worship of excrement. Why? The worship of dung. It's not only a, an insulting term for, for something that is spiritually fallen. It's because there are two facets of reality. The face is the Kedusha, the real thing. And idolatry is the wrong grasp of the same thing. It is an acknowledgement that there's something beyond the human being. But it's the wrong, it's the, it's the opposite of what it should be. <clears throat> Instead of taking the nutritious part, they are taking the fallen part, the dark side of the spiritual world. And that's, the, that's why it's called, it's called that. Now when the human being was created, there was no such thing. When man and, e- and woman were created, there was no back. So there was only the sides of Kedusha and purity. There was no place of foreignness or danger, spiritual danger, and of course there was no excretion. They ate in the garden food that was spiritually prepared. In fact, the Medrash says that the angels prepared their food, <coughs> strained their wine, and prepared what they ate. And therefore the food was absorbed in their bodies. There was no need to excrete. After they were separated and torn apart into man and woman who are separate, who now must face each other and bond in a relationship by relating to each other, the beauty of that being that they can now have a meaningful relationship through their own effort, the danger and dark side of that, meaning that the back is now exposed, then they entered that relationship, and of course they 
ate food from a tree, which was the original sin. Eating goes right to the heart of the, of the fault in creation. And because they ate the fruit of that tree, they became condemned to live in a world where death is apparent. And death also is part of the human body. Now, <coughs> part of the food needs to be excreted as waste, which is offensive and connected to the death forces. Once in history, human beings almost reached that level again. That was when Jewish people left Egypt and moved through the Sinai Desert. They reached a level almost, almost like Adam before the sin. And then when they did that, they ate again that same food. Manna, the man that fell in the desert, was that kind of food that is completely absorbed. And when the Jewish people moved through the desert and ate man, ate man there was no excretion. Right? As the Jews moved through the desert, again the bodies did not excrete because they reached that level of sanctity where they were able to eat food of pure holiness and such food is no waste product that needs to be excreted. In fact, you know that the manna, in, Hebrew, in English it's called manna, <coughs> which means nothing. <coughs> in Hebrew, man means what? The Hebrew word man, they called it man, ki manu, because what is it? Very strange thing. You know that the... the um, there's an axiom in the spiritual world that when a thing is limited, then you can say what it is. When a thing is unlimited, you can't say what it is. How can you say a specific word about something that has no limits? Any word that gives it a definition would be a limitation. Yes? So, for example, you want to talk about God. You can't say what God is. So, therefore, you say, what is He? You ask a question. Ma gadlu Hashem. How great are your works, Hashem? Or, ma rabu How many are your works? Who is like you? In English, you hear this as a sort of Shakespearean rhetorical, say, you know, oh who, oh how great, oh how ma tovu But it's not rhetorical, poetic expression. It is when you can't say what a thing is, then the technique you use is you don't say what it is, you say what is it? Because a que- I see a lot of blank faces. Is anyone out there with me? When you ask a question, you invite always more, right? In fact, Adam. The human being, in Hebrew, adds up to 45. Aleph, Dalad, Mem, Adam, 45. Exactly the same numerical equivalent as the Hebrew word, Ma. The human being is a what? You can't say what he is. That will be limiting him. Again, I see still no enlightened faces. The, man, the word for human in Hebrew is Adam. Rearrange the letters, it spells Ma'od. What does Ma'od mean? Very. Very is a word that whatever you have makes it more. The human being is always what you see is not what you get. <coughs> what you see is only the tip of the iceberg in the physical world. The spiritual extends way beyond the human being. Therefore, the correct word for Adam in the Kabbalistic uh, system, the word Ma, which adds up to 45, or Adam, is the fourth of four spiritual worlds, and it's always the one of essence, the one where all activity is taking place. So therefore, Adam, the human being, is a creature about whom you can say what? What is he? When you want to say, talk about Hashem, Ma Rabbu Masach, how great are your works? Right? You can't say, and therefore, manna was something that was indescribable spiritually. It was a spiritual food in the world. Right? They couldn't say what it was. It was multi-potential, multi-energy. For example, when you ate the manna, it tasted like, what did it taste like? Like anything you wanted. Right? It says, Keleshad Hashem, the word Shad in Hebrew always means, Shin Dalad in Hebrew means something subject to imagination. Right? You know what the shady ma? Not shady ma? Shady ma? They're the twilight zone creatures that are half spiritual, half physical. They're produced by human imagination. 
The same word in Hebrew means the breast from which the, ch- the child suckles. Why? Because the Gemara says when a baby nurses from his mother, he tastes anything in the milk. Whatever, yeah? All, all. And therefore, they called it Keleshad Hasham. And the manna was called this word, which means that whatever you wanted, you tasted in the manna. It's a multipotential. That means it's, a, it's not fixed in the finite world. And therefore, when they saw it, they couldn't give it a name. So they said, this is what? This is what is it? Are we getting anywhere? And when you eat food, the Ramban says that man was crystallized shechina. The manna was divine presence crystallized into a food. And that's what they were able to eat. When you eat food like that, it becomes completely part of you. There's no need to excrete and there's no possibility of excretion. <clears throat> so this is all very mysterious. What does it mean? I mean, is, is this of interest to you? Do you? Yes, no? I spent all night talking about something you're not interested in. If you have other questions on other subjects, I'm happy to talk about. Uh, the secret of food is that the human being is comprised of two elements. There's the vessel, which is the body, <coughs> and there's the inner core, which is the spiritual being, of the neshama, the soul, or the five levels of soul. And these two are opposite. They pull apart like magnets that repel each other. They are rejecting each other. The body being finite and animal and subject to all the contamination that we spoke about before is not the appropriate place for a soul that comes from the spiritual world. That's a spark of infinity and spirituality. The two do not go well together. Right? The Midrashim indicate that when the soul is put into the body, it cries. It, 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 it feels terribly, terribly frustrated and pained to be banished from its place of spiritual source and exiled into a body which is extremely repulsive. You're talking about ultimate spiritual refinement, banished into an animal body full of lusts and cravings and contamination. Exact opposite of the place where a soul should be. Where a soul should be is in the spiritual world as part of Hashem. To be exiled into the body, into the physical world, into a body, is very problematic. And therefore, these two repel each other (coughs) and need to be held together by force. Right? The force that holds body and soul together is called food. Food is the energy that's needed to keep the soul in the body. And it constantly takes energy and, and work. If you don't eat, the two begin to separate. You become faint, which means that the soul starts to distract itself from the body. If you don't eat for long enough, you become unconscious. And if you don't eat for long enough, after that, then the soul leaves completely. Right? Food is necessary to provide the body with what it needs to keep the soul anchored in the body. Right? That's what food does. <coughs> and that's why it has to be pure. And that's why negative food, spiritually, can cause such damage, health-wise, to the body and spiritually to the soul. Right? Unkosher food is metamtem esalev. Metamtem etalev. It, it closes the Jewish heart. Right? It makes you insensitive spiritually. That's why it's so incredibly important to eat food that is absolutely pure from a spiritual perspective. So, that is the nature of food. You see this in many ways. A <clears throat> person eats, it is keeping the, the soul in the body. Let's take a few examples to try to flesh that out. 
First of all, you see clearly that if you don't eat, the two separate. Secondly, eating is done with the mouth. <coughs> the first organ, the organ of ingesting food, <coughs> is the mouth. The mouth is always an organ of connecting worlds. The mouth is the place of the body that connects opposite worlds. Right? For example, the mouth has three functions in the human being. Right? Basically, eating, as we said, speaking, and a human kiss. Right? That is a natural expression of affection between people. All of these being vested in the same part of the body <coughs> are manifestations of the same energy. <coughs> Eating is maintaining connection between spirit and body. Speaking is connecting spirit and physical again. When you speak, you take a spiritual idea, an ethereal abstraction, which is an idea, and you give it enough form in the physical world to be connected in the physical world. Or to put from another perspective, speaking is what connects people. Right? When you speak, either in words or any gesture or expression, Israeli speaking is a deep connection between people. Right? In fact, this is why I can't go into this in detail, but intimacy between husband and wife is also called speaking. Right? Many times the Torah, when it wants to talk about marital intimacy, and it wants to speak in elevated and refined terms. The Torah always speaks in a refined way about these things. So it says speaking when it means intimacy. For example, it talks about a woman behaving immorally. And it says, She ate and wiped her mouth and said, I never did anything wrong. And there clearly is talking about a woman in an illicit relationship. But in order not to talk in a crude fashion, the Torah talks in a euphemistic way, using a term... That is an indirect term to refer to what it means. But obviously, when the Torah does that, it always chooses a term that is borrowed and distant and refined, but in essence the same thing. So when you talk about an intimacy, and you want to talk about it in a refined way, you don't talk about something completely irrelevant. You don't say playing football, you know, or uh, you know, chess. You, know. you talk about something that is... So eating right, is very much the same... Eating, speaking, kissing are all elevated euphemisms, right? For the same, for example, the, the Mishnah says a man was seen alone with a woman. Right? A woman was seen alone with a man in a very improper circumstance. So it says, Rauha medaberes. Rauha medaberet. They saw her speaking to a man. The Mishnah doesn't mean she was speaking to the man. It means she was having an immoral relationship with this particular man. And that is put across in the Mishnah as speaking, right? And there the Gemara makes it plain that speaking is not that she was talking to him. You know, she wasn't selling him an insurance policy. She was uh, engaged in an immoral relationship. And the Torah is used because speaking is a form of connection. So, <clears throat> the word Hebrew word dibur doesn't only mean speaking with a mouth. The, lo the language of dabar in Hebrew means to take an idea and manifest that idea in control in the practical world. Like dabar echad lador means a leader of a generation. Or yadber amim tachtenu. It means to take control of other nations. It means to take an idea or a plan and to execute it in practice. Right? Speech with the mouth is only a particular example of an idea put into. Yeah. If, um, I can understand why dibur can mean something spiritual and it can connect it with the neshama, but the idea of eating kind of contradicts the whole idea of yom kippur. Because that's, you're supposed to be empty and you're supposed to even eat, and that's supposed to be the spiritual day of the year. 
What's the problem? You detach from the body and give you exactly that. Exactly the opposite. Eating, eating, slowly, one second. Not eating itself is what connects you more to God than to your shamanism. Of course it does. It's because it takes you out of the body. Making a mistake. It, yes, also oh, the fact that we're eating is beneficial to the shaman, you said. It keeps it in the body. On Yom Kippur, you want to free it from the body. That's a fasting. Control over it what? If it's detached from you, then what good does that do to you? If you're not, it gets in contact with the higher world. It's not limited to your body. But God's come down here. He's more open to you. I know that you're exactly the opposite. You, you, you're insisting on saying it exactly the opposite. Stay with me. Listen. Yeah. What happens is this. Normally you eat. What does it do? Keeps your soul in your body, right? Yeah. Which is very good for you. You're alive. But it brings your soul down into the animal domain. One day a year, you let the soul fly. One day a year, you step out of your body. You know why you take your shoes off? Because your shoes are what lock you into the world. The lowest part of your body fits into your shoes. The Hebrew word Nile means a lock. Shoe and Hebrew, lock. What's the connection between a shoe and a lock? It locks you into the finite world. The lowest part of your body, your feet, fit in your shoes, and that takes you through the world. The lowest part of your soul, called your nefesh, the lowest part of the neshama, fits into your body. And the body takes you through the world. That's why death in Hebrew, or spirituality, is always regarded as taking off the shoes. You're familiar with it. That's why when the Kohanim serve in the Bet HaMikdash, they take their shoes off. They're in a higher world. When Hashem speaks to a prophet, the first thing He tells him is take off your shoes. Because I want you to lift yourself into a higher world. Chalitza, when a woman takes off a man's shoe, she's saying to him, you refuse to marry me and bring a soul into the world. Keeping them apart, she takes off his shoe again and again. And Yom Kippur, you take off your shoes. You float out of the body into another world. You pay no attention to the body. All five parts of the soul on Yom Kippur are freed from all five parts of the body. So that's why there's five things you can't do on Yom Kippur. All of them are detachment from the body. You can't wear shoes, you lift yourself out of your body. You can't wash your body for pleasure, you lift yourself out of that. You don't anoint the body pleasurably, you lift yourself out of that. You don't, you don't engage in marital intimacy, on, you take your body out of that, right? So Yom Kippur, So what you're doing on Yom Kippur is, you are taking yourself out of the physical world. You're allowing the soul not to be in the clutches of the body. That's exactly what you do. The reason you fast on Yom Kippur, is so that the soul is no longer constrained. You're allowed to float above. And that's why Yom Kippur is considered the one day when the, the animalistic urges don't have any control of you. That's why the word Hasatan in Hebrew adds up to 364. There's one day a year when it's not attached to you. And so on the contrary. Now in Judaism we don't normally do that. Normally we want to bring the soul into the body and elevate the body. But one day a year is the training exercise for letting the soul make contact with the higher world. Right? Not encumbered by the body. Yes, sir? That's what fasting is. The difference between us and other religions is that we do that only as a training exercise in order to come back into the body and elevate the body. Other religions teach that the body is too low, too dangerous. The only way to become holy is to leave the body completely. All other religions. That's why in Christianity, if you're serious about being holy, you have to become a monk or a nun. Because you engage the body much too dangerous. In all Eastern processes, there's an ascetic and celibate idea of leaving the body behind. We agree with that at certain times in order to... So, the mouth is an organ of connection, and that's why speaking is done with the mouth, which is connecting. Eating is done with the mouth, which is connecting. And a kiss is a natural expression. It's the part of the body that's used, which doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, you, your mother has a child. She wants to express love for the child. She slobbers all over the child with her mouth. I mean, does that make any sense? It's dangerous. It's unhealthy. It's medically ridiculous. I mean, who on earth would... If you were a Martian... And I, you know, and I said to you, see these things, these are called humans, right? 
How would you imagine they express love and affection for each other? You'd come up with kissing? You'd have to be off your rocker to do you'd said, you know, you'd come up with touching foreheads or sort of gently touching ears or some sort of some you know, something you're fine, you know, and slobber over the person, share your germs with him. But the reason is because the mouth is the place of connection. And therefore that's the natural and so eating is one of those functions. That's one way you see it. Another way you see it is that the sacrifices in the temple, the world survives because in the temple, in Jerusalem, the Beit HaMikdash, is the place of sacrifices. And offering sacrifices in the temple is considered to be the way the world eats. Right? I understand this more deeply. The Beit HaMikdash is the place of connection between higher and lower worlds. Right? In all of our all spiritual references to the temple are as a place of connection. For example, the Beis HaMikdash is called the neck of the world, Kemigdal Tzavarech. The neck is always the place that connects the higher world of spirit with the lower world of, of, the, of the material. The neck is the organ of connection. We've pointed this out many times. And therefore, the temple is a place of connecting higher and lower worlds. And of course, in the Beis HaMikdash, you have the same three functions of connection, eating, speaking, and kissing. <coughs> eating is that the temple is the place where the world eats. The sacrifices are offered there. And all the korbanas, the sacrifices, have the laws of food. We'll try and understand that more deeply. The temple is the place of speaking. Right? In the Holy of Holies is where Hashem's voice speaks. It's the mouth of the world. And of course it's the place where a kiss takes place. It's called in the Talmud, Asra Danashki Shmayav Aradadi, where heaven and earth kiss. That's where the higher world is making contact with the lower world. It's no accident that the world was created <coughs> from the rock that forms the center of the Beis HaMikdash of the Temple. That is where the spiritual world manifested in the physical world. So argument in the Talmud whether that part of the world is considered the head and creation spreads downwards or it's considered the Ambalikas and creation spreads in both directions. But whichever it is, that is the source of creation of the world. And that's the deep secret of offering sacrifices. To us it sounds extremely difficult. Sacrifices, you go into a temple and it's not like a place of organ music and stained glass windows. It's a place of killing animals and wading in their blood and sprinkling their blood. And like, what is going on? You know, this is Torah, which is the most refined spiritual system in the world. You go into the temple and it's like a slaughterhouse. Like splashing blood around in bowls and splashing it on the altar and killing animals. And what does it mean? <clears throat> but the concept is a sacrifice. Korban in Hebrew means a place, a way of coming close, of making contact, right? To mimakriv is to be mekarev, it means to come closer. And offering a korban, a sacrifice, <coughs> means that the world is eating. The Torah refers to sacrifices as meals. Et korbani lachmi, it says. My sacrifice is my bread. The altar is called shulchan gavoa, it's called the higher table. Every sacrifice was offered with drinks and salt, just like a meal. Right? In many, many ways you see that the sacrifices given in the temple are actually a form of the world's eating. And of course the function of that is that the human being is a microcosm of the world. The human has all the parts of the world. One of the essential aspects of the human being is that he's a finite uh, organism with a spiritual core of infinity. The world is a finite material entity with a spiritual infinite core, namely the divine presence in. And just like when you eat, you keep your spiritual being in your body. And if you don't eat, the two snap apart. The world needs the sacrifices to keep Hashem's presence, as it were, in the world. And when we're no longer able to offer sacrifices, the world looks the way it does now, which is almost dead. The spiritual presence is taken out. And that's the deep meaning of the sacrifices. 
why it has to be animals and animals have to die, <coughs> we'll try and talk about that separately. Of course, there are many sacrifices that are not animals, flour and oil and, and, and uh, cakes and bread and matzahs. There are many aspects of food, right? The table the, you know, of the four of the four kalim in, in, the, in the Mishkan, one of them is a table which has 12 loaves of bread, which are always fresh. See, bread is a very, <coughs> bread and food, a very important, important part of this thing. But the central idea, says the Nefesh HaChaim, of sacrifices is this is a feeding of the world in a large scale. Microcosmically, you need to take food in. In the macrocosm, the world needs to be to have this energy that we offer, as it were, that keeps the spiritual presence in the world. It's a very strange idea for us. We're not familiar. Some sources say that because it's so foreign to us and so primitive sounding to us, sacrifices, it's why we don't have them today. And that, of course, needs a long and detailed approach. It's a classically difficult subject. But this is the concept, is that all things need to eat, which involve a connection between spiritual and physical, need to absorb something from the world. You realize, I'm sure, that this applies in the lower half of the body, right? You know, the body has three layers. There's the head. That's the three higher forces. There's the chest, which is the middle three. Talking about the spheris, right? The spherot, the mystical levels of the world. And then below the diaphragm, you have the lower three. And in each of these, of course, there's an absorbing of material from the outside world. In the lower half of the body, it's food, which is material substances that are absorbed. They go into the circulation. The stomach absorbs the food and the bowel is taken from there through what's known as the portal circulation to the liver. By the way, that's why it's called the liver. Why is the liver called liver? Where did they get that from? It sustains life. Right? Why does the liver sustain life more than other organs? Because that's where it absorbs the food. Food is taken from the bowel and absorbed into the liver where it's produced into the foodstuffs, converted into foodstuffs that keep the body alive. In Hebrew, it's called kaved, the heavy part. In Hebrew, the liver is called kaved. It also means kavod, which is a, a deep connection. But kaved is the heavy part where the blood is fed and nourished. And of course, in, in a child, the liver actually produces blood. That is the part of the body that is the, th- the lower third of the body, which is the heavy part, which is the part most connected to the physical world. But of course, in the middle section of the body, you have a more refined version of the same thing. What's the middle section of the body? Heart and lungs. What does heart and lungs do? Also absorb from the outer world, but something much more refined. In this case, it's the ephemeral, ethereal notion of air. You're not absorbing something coarse and physical like food into the bowel. You're absorbing something very refined in the form of a gas, air and oxygen. And that is, and of course, just like the bowel is absorbing food that is necessary and excreting the component that is not. Similarly, the heart and lungs are a system that absorb the gases that are necessary and excrete the ones that are wasted and toxic, right? This is exactly the same parallel process. When you get into the head, of course, what's absorbed is not something as material as air, but something as immaterial as experience. Through the modalities of sense, the eyes, ears, nose, and mouth in the sense of taste, Elements from the world are absorbed into experience and the function of the mind should be to absorb the pure and to reject and excrete the notions and spiritual things that are negative. Those are three layers of the same same pattern in the body. Any questions so far? So that's the first aspect is eating is not some sort of, uh, again, you have to get your head out of thinking that we are evolutionary Worms or amoebae, you know, and when you were an amoeba or a gorilla, you happened to eat. wasn't much else to do. So now you're, you know, uh, advanced update on a gorilla. So, you, you know, you 
break your diet, you know, every day and eat. That's not the idea. The idea is that the world was created this way, that life actually depends on this energy that glues together soul and body. Let's talk about vegetarianism for a bit. Eating meat is not a simple matter at all. In fact, we are now going through the parshas. The last week we read about the formation of the world and Adam. This week we read about the flood, where mankind of that generation was destroyed. So the Talmud makes it clear that until the flood they were vegetarians. right? Man was not allowed to eat meat. On the contrary, nothing would have been more brutal and more silly. When a human being was created, he was not, not allowed to eat meat and it would have been ridiculous. Animals were, were sentient living beings. According to Kabbalistic teaching, the animals were on a human level then. What are animals for? By the way, the Hebrew, what does the word animal mean? What does animal mean? Huh? It has a soul. Anima is a soul. Chaya in Hebrew means a living being. The Torah says if you kill an animal unnecessarily, it's called spilling blood. There's no question about it. And on the original level, animals were man's agents doing the mitzvahs in the world. The Kabbalists say that man was the director and the animals were all sentient beings on the level something like humans are now and their task was to carry out the mitzvahs in the world. Why does the world need animals? Why do you need animals in the world? You need uh, boa constrictors in the Amazon jungle? Or you need like a... You need them? Really? They needed because in the original primordial creation, each animal served the function. It did a certain mitzvah. It kept part of the world alive. Right? All orchestrated by the human being. And they were... Right? You can see if you look at animals carefully. You can see they have a tremendous wisdom. It's, it's blunted. They don't have the consciousness of it. You see that they, they're not aware of their own wisdom. Right? But you see they have tremendous wisdom. The instincts and the perfection with which animals are able to, yeah, to fulfill what they do. That's it. You ever spend time in the bush... It's unbelievable the way the animals function. If you have the privilege of being a South African, and you've ever spent time in the wilds, and you watch the, you watch the patterns of behavior of, of elephant or anything, giraffe, zebra, they have amazing, amazing innate wisdom. Right? You can see clearly they're out of touch with that now. They've been brutalized by man's actions to the point that they themselves have become very, very coarse and brutal and they shred each other alive and tear each other to pieces. That's not the way the world was designed, designed, right? You can see it's very, very brutal. And therefore, man was not designed to eat animals. He was vegetarian and not allowed to eat animals. Sacrifices and is, is a special category. But the human being was not absorbing the animal world. The animal world was a partner, as it were, with man. And man and the animals, man and the animals were only allowed to eat vegetable material. After the flood, <clears throat> then humans sank to a much lower physical level and a much lower spiritual level. Before the flood, people were on an incredible level. People lived for hundreds of years, even after the sin of Adam. People lived ordinarily for seven, eight, nine hundred years. And they lived on a vegetarian diet. After the flood, human lifetime shrank tremendously. Right? After that, people live 120 years. Remarkable. Now most people live much less than that. And they were condemned to live in a way that requires, as it were, the eating of another living being, which is very problematic, very offensive if, you, if you're sensitive, right? If you're a sensitive person and you eat a piece of chicken and you see the shape of the organ or the limb, yeah, if you eat it, uh, sort of a chicken bits or pie, you know, so it's less... But if you see a piece of an animal clearly identifiable, there should be a certain sensitivity that, that, that is there, right? It's a living being that got killed, in order for you to eat it. It's not a simple matter. The Talmud says you have to be wise to eat meat. And not at all a simple matter. 
And therefore, the ideal situation certainly was not eating meat. It became a concession to the fallen nature of the human mind and body after the flood. If you want one avenue of insight into this, I could say, Rav Simcha used to say that it's called Mida Keneged Mida. That means they were punished in like kind for what they did. You know, the generation of the flood that we read about this week, their sin was called Hamas. Hamas means wanton theft. <coughs> the primary sin was taking things from each other without permission, right? That's what theft is. You take away something that is part of another person's life. When you steal money from a person, you take away part of his sustenance. You're taking away part of his life. That was their crime. The punishment was that the earth was wiped out and human beings started again. But humanity then began on a level of plan B. And they were condemned then to suffer the consequences of what their sin had been. Their sin was they sustained themselves by taking other people's lives. They now become a generation of humans in the world who are forced to be sustained by eating other beings, means living on other things' lives. That's the the message. The message is this is a despicable state where you shouldn't have needed this. You should have been able to live without killing other living and sentient beings. Now you're condemned, as it were, to live by means of having to kill creatures, as it were, to sustain yourself, which is a very great humiliation and is not an ideal state. When the Mashiach comes, humans will once again be vegetarian and animals will once again be vegetarian. Animals won't tear each other apart alive with tremendous cruelty and brutality and insensitivity. The world will again... yeah. No, let me explain that. Why you're not required to be vegetarian today is because now that the world has fallen to that level, we are no longer required to remain above it. You are allowed to be a vegetarian if you don't like eating meat. If you are very sensitive and you see the meat and it feels you, you, you feel awkward and doesn't make you feel good, eat vegetarian. Just one second, one second. You're certainly allowed to. What you may not do is say, it's wrong to eat meat. And therefore, I'm not doing it. If God said it's okay, it's okay. He knows more than you. So you, you don't have to say that. You can say, I don't enjoy it. To me, it feels, right? Some people say, look, if you've ever been to a slaughterhouse and you've seen what's going on there, and you don't like that idea, so you're not saying it's wrong. Hashem said it's okay, right? But there's a deeper idea here, and that is this. Remind, I'll come back to your question if you, if you remind me. But let me just say this. There's a principle in Torah, which is amazing principle, which is whenever a fault occurs in the world, a breakdown, a problem, the tikkun of that problem is to use the problem for its own tikkun. Amazing principle. I'll just give you one example. When man was naked, right? They were naked, man and woman. They weren't ashamed. After the sin, they became ashamed of their nakedness. I'm not going into the whole story why and how. What did they do? They took leaves, fig leaves, to cover themselves. The leaf of a fig, the te'ena. Why? Because Rashi says the fruit they sinned by eating was the fig. So when they covered themselves, they used the leaf of the fig tree. Why? The place of the problem must now be the tikkun. Midrash says that other trees would not give them their leaves because they had sinned. Only the fig tree which had been used for the sin gave its leaf. By the way, you know that figs in Hebrew, te'ena, is always the symbol of physical pleasure. Wine, grapes, is always the symbol of spiritual pleasure. Wine goes to the head. Figs is always ishtachat gafno ve ishtachat te'enato. Always two dimensions. Sitting under your vine, which is the wine of spirituality. Sitting under the fig, which is the perfection of the, spirit, of the physical world. But be that as it may, but Hashem went further. When Hashem saw them hiding the, the naked parts of their body with fig leaves, 
he came into the world and he sewed them garments completely that covered them. What's the message? The message is, clothing is a sign of your shame. If you were spiritually innocent, you wouldn't need clothes. You could walk around naked and the beauty of the body would be apparent. It was glowing their body beforehand. You would not be ashamed. Now that you've sinned, you need to cover the shameful parts of the body. And Hashem said, no. Now you must use the problem for its own solution. So now we use clothes to hide the nakedness, but to reveal the dignity. See, the message of clothing, clothing has two functions. One is that a garment, a beged, beged in Hebrew, is hiding nakedness. But it's revealing dignity. When a king wears royal garments, the garments hide the king. You can't see him, but you see he's a king. Again, you have to understand, there's a wonderful, wonderful message. There's a long lot to talk about here. The concept of a garment in Hebrew is always something that is two-faced. It's two-faced. It hides, and it, the Hebrew word beged means a traitor. Why is beged got to do with boged? Begidah. What's, what's the concept? Because a boged is somebody who's one thing on the inside and shows another thing on the outside. In Old English, the word for a traitor was a turncoat. By the way, in Hebrew, it's very exact. The word beged, which means a garment, also means treachery. The word me'il in Hebrew, what's a me'il? A coat. A coat is an outer garment. The word me'ilah, me'ilah means spiritual treachery. When you take something from the inner zone of spiritual sanctity and you bring it out for the profane, that's called me'ilah. In fact, it's beautiful. The other word for a garment in Hebrew is levush. The Medaktikim say levush means lobosh, not to be ashamed. Levush means not bosh. It's against busha. So the message is like this. You know, you know that the, the Gemara says that before the sin, man wore kotnot or, alef vavresh. He was clothed in garments of light. He had no clothing on. His clothing was light. What does that mean? Or is that which reveals. Man wore garments before where you looked at the outside, you saw the inside. What does it mean to be clothed in light? It means when you look from the outside, you see the inside. And that was apparent. The reason he did not need clothes was because the outside looked like the inside. The outside was incredibly spiritual, right? The, the angels couldn't tell the difference between man and Hashem. That incredible beauty was because the body was a perfect reflection of the inner being. After the sin, the body and the soul crashed into war. Now the body looks animal. Why do you feel ashamed with no clothes on? You stand in front of the mirror with no clothes on, look at yourself. Why do you feel ashamed? You know why? Because inwardly you know you're angelic. And outwardly you look like a horse. That's why you're ashamed. Because you know your body looks grossly like an animal. And you know you're not an animal. What's the response? To hide the body. But in hiding the body you reveal your dignity. Animals don't wear clothes. That's the, you take the problem and make the problem the tikkun. That's why we're so fussy in the Jewish religion to wear decent clothing and to look refined. That's why your clothes have to be clean. We wear garments only for dignity. For example, the lower parts of the body, the more the function of lack of shame and the less the function of dignity. The higher the parts of the body that you're clothed, less is the function of hiding nakedness and more of it. Your shoes are not there for dignity. Your, shoes, so your, your trousers are not there for dignity. Your trousers, so you don't look like a, a horse. But when you get to your hat, for example, your hat is not there because you need it as an audience. That's only a revelation of, why do you wear a hat? A hat is purely, we don't wear that to keep the rain off. A hat is something that's called kavod rosh. It's a special garment that reveals the dignity of the one who wears it, right? This is, anyway, it's a long story. But Sorry, what was your question before I move on? Well, what you said was interesting. 
Jews are among the um, largest um, race of vegetarians. Okay, so now the concept is like this, that you use the, you use the problem for its own correction, right? Now, here's what happens with meeting meat. There's an idea that comes to the forefront in Hasidic writings, which is this. Eating meat is very problematic, right? An animal gets killed. On the other hand, it's a tremendous elevation of the animal when you eat it. And the idea in Hasidic is this. You know, in the secular world, they say you are what you eat. Right? That's a very deep idea. And it's like this. The food chain works like this. An inorganic, that means a, a plant, absorbs the inorganic world, absorbs the chemical world into its own being. An animal eats the plant and absorbs the plant material into it. When a human eats the animal and absorbs it into himself, he's elevating the whole process into human material. So it means like this, that the whole process of the world, from the very inorganic materials of the earth, that become plant material. From the plant material that becomes animal material. From the animal material that you eat, you absorb the whole world into part of your being. Now what do you do? Well, if you eat an animal, which has eaten plants, which has eaten chemical material, and you go and spend the day with the energy from that food to do mitzvahs in the world, amazing! You've now converted the inanimate and plant and animal world into spiritual value. Nothing could be better for an animal than that. You've elevated an animal into the spiritual world. On the other hand, if you eat an animal and then you spend the day sleeping, or even worse, you take the energy of that animal and its life essence, and now you go do bad stuff in the world, you just kill the chicken. Every chicken prays fervently, I can assure you, to be eaten by a tzaddik. Every chicken desperately longs to be eaten by a person of spiritual greatness so that it can be elevated into the world. Every carrot prays fervently to be eaten by a chicken that's going to be eaten by a tzaddik. And every molecule of sodium chloride, etc., in the world, prays to be eaten by a carrot that gets eaten by a chicken that gets eaten by a tzaddik, so that the whole... Do you understand what's going on? And therefore, that's what the Talmud means, you have to be wise to eat meat. You have to be spiritually elevated, so that when you eat the meat that's eaten the plant, that's eaten the aspect of the material world, you've elevated the process, and you are very responsible. You've now taken this aspect of the world into yourself. You must produce something that represents an elevation of that food. Otherwise, you should not be eating meat. Yes, that's the concept. So, so on the one side, it's brutal. An animal dies for this. On the other hand, the tikkun is that he gets absorbed into the spiritual world. And of course, you should make an effort to do that. And that's why great tzaddikim are very careful what they eat. They will never eat anything more than necessary. Make sure that everything is used responsibly and converted correctly into spiritual energy. That is the concept of... Um, that's a basic approach to vegetarianism. And why we have a natural repulsion when we see... When we see you know, people eating animals and, and killing them, it's not the way the world was designed to be. In this fallen phase of world history, it is unfortunately the norm. Speaking as a doctor, what I set up to now is on Jewish terms. Speaking from a medical point of view, you may not agree with this, but it's a fact that the human being is tuned to eating meat. Our bodies are built in such a way that we actually need animal protein. If you want to be a vegetarian and make sure you get all your protein needs and other needs, it can be done, but you have to eat intelligently. You know, the way, the, the most basic way to show this is that first class, pro, you know, in, in, I'm going to give you a lecture here about, about dietary, you know, medicine, but 
just give you one illustration. You know, there are two kinds of protein, so-called, in, in, in dietary science. One is called first-class protein, one is called second. First-class protein, by definition, is protein that contains all the amino acids of the human... Protein is made up of various amino acids, right? A couple dozen, more or less, amino acids. Those amino acids are protein components of which the human body needs all. If you're lacking one of those amino acids, you cannot synthesize all the proteins you need in your body. First-class protein is protein that contains all the amino acids, which means if you eat protein from one of those sources, you have all your subcomponents of your protein needs met. Second-class protein is protein but does not contain the full array of amino acids. Veg now, the only first-class proteins that there are are meat, fish, and milk products, right? That's first-class protein. If you eat meat or fish, or if you eat eggs, or egg white, or milk, those are uh, animal products that contain first-class protein and you will have all your protein needs met. And the human body is designed enzymatically to digest such protein and that will keep you, that will keep you healthy. It has side effects too, by the way. Eating meat also got very negative side effects. But if you eat second-class protein, which by definition is vegetable protein like legumes, peas, beans, pulses... Um, which uh, many sources of protein in the uh, uh, plant world, none of them are first-class protein. Each of them has only a uh, subset of the amino acids you need. And therefore, eating one vegetarian food, you cannot survive, right, because you are missing amino acids. If you combine your, your, your uh, vegetable foods correctly so that you cover all the bases, that means you have... In is this clear? You eat a combination of nuts and protein containing legumes and so forth, intelligently, you can cover all the amino acids. But you need, to, you need to know what you're doing to make sure that you don't become protein, or for that matter, mineral or iron deficient, or folate deficient, or B12 deficient. These are common problems in people who are vegetarians, and especially common problems in people who are vegans, who eat no animal products at all. I'm not saying it can't be done. It can be done, and some people say they feel incredible eating food like that. There's a lot of mounting evidence today that a very a diet that is predisposed towards fruit and vegetables and grains and cereals is extremely healthy and that one should eat a minimum of meat products, right? Because for all the containing all the amino acids, there's no question that they have tremendous side effects both in terms of cholesterol and many other um, problems which are today considered to be part of the thing. Fish is considered to be healthy today, especially certain types of fish with omega-3 acids. And in fact, our Jewish tradition is that fish are extremely healthy, right? There's a, there's a Hasidic tradition to eat fish every Shabbos. Fish were not subject to the curse. When man was cursed, the flood that wiped out the world did not wipe out fish. Right? Fish were not subject to the problem. And that's why you don't have to shecht fish. Animals need shechting. They need a separation between the world of head and the world of body. Otherwise, they're incredibly spiritually damaging. Fish have no neck. Fish aren't subject to shechita. There is no neck means it's a creature that doesn't have a... Do you understand? Fish are not creatures that have a separation between the world of spirit and the world of the body. The halacha with a fish is that to shech the fish, all you need to do is to take it out of the water. That, that's called shech. In an animal, you can't eat an animal unless it's meticulously shechted in the correct way. A fish doesn't require that. All a fish... You can't eat a fish in the water. That's not kosher. You know that? You can't do that. You can't swim around in the water and swallow a sardine. They're swimming towards you. Right? That's not allowed. That's not. Yeah, he has to be taken out of the water. That's the shechting of a fish, but not nearly as re, as demanding as the tikkun that's needed for an animal. And of course, animals with negative spiritual characteristics are not edible at all. Like like animals of prey, right? Animals that eat each other 
those characteristics of preying on each other and cruelly tearing them apart becomes part of the fabric of that food. When you absorb food like that, there's a very negative... Right? Even animals that aren't birds of prey, animals or birds of prey, but that have negative characteristics. Stork, for example. A stork is an unkosher bird. It has habits that are, that are problematic, right? Even though it's not uh, a bird of prey. So that is some of the idea behind being a vegan or vegetarian. And I'll stop here if you have any questions. There are many other things. What about colorings and additives that may not be healthy? How do we approach that? I mean, there are many other questions here, but let me see if you have any questions that I can answer. Yes, please. Yes. Okay. We don't eat them. We don't eat them. Yes, please. You shouldn't eat milk. Fine. You shouldn't eat contaminated food. Obviously. Only what? What? Right. Yes. What's your question? I don't hear the question. You need protein. Yes. Absolutely. Of course. I said so. Need what? You need protein. I said that's for you. No. Fish and meat and eggs and milk are first class protein, right? If you eat those, you will have all your protein needs satisfied. If you would choose to eat vegetables, and you, may, you must make sure they're not contaminated either, then you must make a varied diet of vegetables and pulses and legumes and nuts and so forth to get all your protein. I didn't say you must eat mercury contaminated fish. Our bodies need protein. Yes, please. Can't survive without protein. Do you know that? You cannot survive without a diet of protein. Yes, please. Fur. Fur. Leather. No, it's not becoming part of you. It's a good thing to use for a good reason, like you should use the whole world spiritually. And of course, you don't have to kill. No, take a dead one. One use one that's dead already. You have to kill it for that. First of all, there's a Torah prohibition of cruelty. It's debatable whether it's a rabbinic obligation or it's a Torah obligation. Certainly, not allowed to use animals in any way that causes them pain or harm. You can use animals in a way that causes them a certain amount of discomfort if it's reasonable and a serious human need. You can ride a horse. You can use a donkey to carry burdens and so forth and so on. I'm sure it doesn't enjoy it too much. But you're absolutely right. But to torture animals, right, for human scientific kind of cosmetic research, absolutely ridiculous. Definitely not. No harm using a fur of an animal if it's dead and you didn't, you didn't cause any pain. The best shoes are leather. Yeah. 
one um, about fish. Um, from what I understand, people intend to dash them over their heads so they don't suffer when they come out of water. Nothing wrong with that. Can we eat a fish if it, like, die, if it dies from suffocation? Yeah. It's not unkosher. It doesn't feel um, pain when it comes out of the water? If it does, don't do that. Yeah, but I'm saying you can theoretically eat a fish if you just take yeah, it out of the water. Yeah, that's right. Because that's not a problem of eating. That's a problem of cruelty to an animal. Yeah, but you're not supposed to, you're supposed to shake an animal on purpose because of cruelty. Who said? No. That's why you do it Who said? There's no reason why you cut it. So no. There's a special point where it doesn't feel any suffering. No. You have to shake it because the Torah says so. It happens to be a very humane way of doing it. I wouldn't say it's completely... But of course it's possible if you don't shaft it properly, but it doesn't say in the Torah because it's causing pain. We understand that. It doesn't say that. Again, you're making a mistake. There's a separate prohibition of causing pain to an animal. Even if you could shaft it in an absolutely kosher way and you caused it pain, you'd be out of order. You're not allowed to do that. You have to feed your animals before you eat. You know that? I see we should have had a lecture here on kindness to animals. Do you know that it's a Torah obligation to feed? You're not allowed to eat till you fed your animal. If you take the responsibility of looking after an animal, you're not allowed to eat please. You know why it says? Because it says, Vanasati Asev I will give um, green, uh, produce in your fields, right? I will give produce in your fields, live him for your animals, and eat and be satisfied. So the Torah, the, the Torah points out, it says, food in the fields for your animals, and then it says, eat and be satisfied. So first the animal has to eat, and then you eat. You can drink before you feed your animal. But you're not allowed to eat. You come home and your dog's hungry. You can have a glass of water, but you can't eat lunch till you fed your dog. Or your fish. Right? That's a Torah attitude. No question. Yeah. And about all the rest of the animals that we don't eat that are kosher, all of them are included in having like negative attributes about them? No. All non-kosher animals... Yeah, all non-kosher animals will have a serious... will have a spiritually desensitizing effect on you. Each one may be for a different reason and a different characteristic, which the Kabbalist Kabbalists would go into. Sometimes we may not be aware of them. But the general principle is unkosher food is metamte mesalev. It desensitizes the heart. That's a Jewish heart. A non-Jew is not prohibited. It's a different spiritual maker. Sorry, what's dumb? They're not negative. What do they have negative? Thick-headed isn't negative. No. Why is thick-headed negative? Some of the sweetest people are not very intelligent. <laughs> negative means it has a negative characteristic. It preys on other animals. It tortures and causes pain to other animals. It, 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 it takes away young from another animal. It, prey, it, it puts its eggs in another bird's nest and displaces that bird's eggs. Those are spiritually odious characteristics. Being unintelligent. Okay. You're not culpable for me. Yeah. Yes. That's not called a bad midder. Being unintelligent is not a bad midder. I'm not with you. This is not a spiritually damaging characteristic. Yes. Yes. They shouldn't. They shouldn't. You should be eating healthy food and doing proper exercise. The Rambam says you should. You're asking me about people, your friends, who... Eat too much and sleep too much is your, their problem. Why should they be at that time? No. Eat a healthy meal and suitable time of day. Well, what's the problem? You should eat food that is good and healthy and good for health. What's the question? Where does it say in the Torah? You've got to eat a heavy meal at 11 o'clock at night. I'm not responsible for that. What are you blaming me for? 
Yes, please. The Rambam has a whole chapter on guarding your health and what you should eat. The Torah is very explicit. You're not allowed to eat standing up. You have to eat sitting down. You have to. The Rambam says you shouldn't eat till you're full. You should get up from a meal when you're three quarters full. It's unhealthy to fill. You don't need to be full. Three quarters is enough. By the way, medically it makes fantastic sense. Because if you get up, when, if you stop eating when you're three quarters full, I promise you 20 minutes later you'll feel fine. The only reason you stuff yourself full is you want the feeling of fullness before your blood sugar has begun to rise. Because you absorb, if you eat till you've had enough, not stuffed, right? A few minutes later, if you give time for the food to start being digested, you'll feel fine. It's another reason people have sweet desserts. They want a punch and a kick in the blood sugar so that you take in something sweet and you feel, you don't need to do that. If you have a good meal, enough for yourself, three quarters full, wait half an hour, you'll feel fine. Yes, especially if you eat proper glycemic index foods, where the food's absorbed gradually and in a healthy fashion, rather than having boosts and drops in your blood sugar. It's very medically doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. So, how should people like us, like It dulls your character if you eat too much of anything, and especially meat, which is more spiritually problematic. There the correct approach is, the, correct, the, the Torah approach to that is, what's considered normal from the health perspective of the consensus of experts in your generation? That's what you're required to do. If today it's considered unhealthy to eat trans fats, right, or um, um, saturated fats, for example, which is the common wisdom today, in 10 years' time they might change their minds. The evidence today suggests that. A Jew is required to do what the consensus of broad expert opinion is in your generation. If they change their minds in 10 years' time, you're not guilty for having done wrong before. And if you don't do what's considered normal in your generation, by broad societal standards, you're negligent. If you want to know how much protein you should eat from a medical point of view, so the facts show that for a normal adult male, yeah, if you eat about 70 grams of first-class protein. That's like one helping of fish a day. You will not break down your in your intrinsic body proteins. In other words, that's a minimum. So, so 70 grams is not much at all. 70 to 100 grams, you're talking about a small helping of fish, right? First-class protein. If you eat that every day, you will not force your body tissues to break down protein for amino acid. It will, your body can then afford to break down glycogen and fat, which is much healthier for you. And the rest of your intake should be from the groups of foods that are recommended for each for each day. We eat much more than that. We eat much more protein a day than se- most of us than 70 grams, right? But one egg a day or uh, egg white or one helping of, of fish, something like that, you, uh, 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 g- give you a dieting clue for those who are interested in dieting. If you want a very successful diet, I mean, most people will stick to this because it's not, not easy. But if you eat only 70 grams of protein a day, that's all. And the rest you can make up with virtually non-calorie containing foods like vegetables, and you can have cabbage soup, and you have as much carrots as you want, you'll turn orange, you know, but you can, you will lose weight dramatically, and you won't break down your own body proteins. Because once you're restocking enough intrinsic protein, your body will break down fat stores, which are much richer in energy than protein anyway, and that's fine. But if you don't eat protein either, then your body will unselectively break down your muscle bulk, as well as your fat, and that's not what you want. Yeah, so a good diet, if you want a dietary tip, you eat a diet of about 100 grams protein a day, plus plenty of vegetables and vitamins and minerals and everything else, and plenty of liquids, so you're not missing any vital ingredients, and almost no other calories. You'll lose weight like a bum. Yeah. But people don't like it, not tasty. Vegetables, because it keeps happening. Cool. Is that being normal, kind of? 
No, vegetables can be fertilized with human fertilizer and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, the whole world's subject. What? What does organic mean? Fine, of course. Why should you eat pesticides? Jewishly, by the way, it's not a real problem. That means if if food products like food that has been sprayed or where there are colorings or preservatives which have never been shown to be healthy, by the way. You know, in the British Medical Journal some time ago, there was a leader article pointing out that many food colorings and additives that are used today have never been demonstrated to be healthy. Never conclude. Jewishly, it's not such a concern because if it's broadly accepted in society as cons- and it's considered normal, but there are certain provisos, then you're not required to fuss about that Jewishly. If you're not, if you're not naive, you know that there are certain dangers and, and, and problems. Then you shouldn't, you wouldn't be allowed to do that stuff. Yes. Why do we need? We are thinking at the beginning. Why we need this? Why, why we need this to be created in this way? Why I answered that. It's because to keep spirit and body together. Why? Why, why couldn't we have a neshama together without having to? Eat? Well, the, the the notion of having a neshama guf is that you have a spiritual element pulling in one direction, an animalistic, childish brutal, earthy element pulling in an, in an opposite direction and that's how you, how you have free will. It's because you're located in the interface between those two. Now you need a way of holding them together and a way of being able to discipline one by means of the other. Now if you go back and say, why did God need that? If you keep, with, you keep going with that chain of questions, we get to a point where you can't ask. You can't ask those questions. Yes? Yeah. Maybe, maybe. It depends what the issues are. If it's cruelty, certainly. If it's a notion of organic, which has not really got any real parameters, by which I mean not clear spiritual sources in Torah, and not an issue like cruelty or contamination by, you know, um, hormones or um, stuff, then possibly not. Again, what I'm saying to you is this. If the notion of an organic product, whether it's animal or vegetable, is purely spiritual. In other words, there's a, a modern... Uh, or new age type of conception that if it's so-called organic, it's better spiritually. I'm not sure that washes Jewishly. We have to find a correct Torah source for that, right? Or an empirical evidence that actually makes a difference. That I'm not sure you have to be too concerned about. If evidence comes up and it can be shown, or there's good cogent reason to, you know, to assume that, or there's evidence, that means organic is free of certain acknowledged problems like pesticides or so forth, absolutely. Absolutely. So each case will have to be judged on its own you know, how much of the organic world today is a marketing kind of new agey kind of a fluffy thing and how much is actually real concern for issues like cruelty and contamination to make that distinction and to the level, to the extent that that distinction is real, absolutely have to take care of that. But not, not because it is called organic, but because the issues the Torah recognizes there. Probably cruelty to animals weighs in much more heavily than I don't know which particular method of you know, you grew it under a full moon or yeah, that's a real thing. It's absolutely unacceptable that animals are, are you know, are, are mistreated and, you know, unnaturally. It's not only wrong from a cruelty point of view. It's just a, it's an insensitive, you know, completely insensitive way to to treat the natural world. Genetic modification is another issue. Of, of crops and so forth. There's no hardcore Torah prohibition of manipulating the natural world. There may be very unwise aspects to it that, that the good common sense should urge us to stay away from. But the, 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 the raw issue of changing a natural thing in itself is not a hardcore Torah prohibition. 
unless the Torah says so, like grafting certain species that aren't allowed to be done. Torah is very concerned about not mixing things from different worlds. You're not allowed to wear shutness in your clothing, right? Wool and linen stitched into the same garment. Why? The Kabbalists explain wool is from the animal world, linen flax is from the plant world, and certain of those things shouldn't be mixed in a certain way. It's a spiritual thing. Or planting two crops in close proximity, two different types of crops that suckle from the same ground. There seems a spiritual problem in that. Grafting certain things. T- uh, a nectarine, for example. right? Not, not good. It's two species that have been grafted. It's not forbidden to eat, as it happens. Not allowed to do it, though. Yeah, any final questions? Yes. Sorry, is this a question? Yes, any other questions? Um, Rabbi, I just wanted to find out, you mentioned shoes. Yeah. Um, like connected to the world. When, you, when we dug, yeah. um, why don't we... <coughs> Excellent question. Excellent question. <coughs> in fact, in Talmudic times, until Talmudic times, the law was you had to take your shoes off when you dug. Prayer was a... Um, prayer is a stepping into a higher world. That's why the Kohanim in the temple don't wear shoes. And the law was... That when you started praying, you both took off your shoes and stepped down into a low place. Because it says, I called out to you from the depths. So the custom shuls were built, not with a bimah, but a depression. And as many ancient shuls you go to today, you'll see where the chazan stands is a, is a, low, a low place, not a high place. That's fallen out of use. And also the shoes probably, you have to be on a level of being able to feel that spiritually. Today when the Kohanim bless the people, they take off their shoes. But for us to dive naturally by taking our shoes, probably for us it's more important to look dignified, right? Because the law is when you speak to Hashem, you have to be dressed like you're dressed in front of a king. It's not right to come to davening in your old sweatsuit and your crocs. Not right. You wouldn't go see the queen that way. So when you stand in front of Hashem, you shouldn't do that, right? Some say it's even, you know, you, unless you're properly dressed, it's better not to daven. So therefore today, probably being properly dressed with your shoes on is probably more of a respect, respect issue Right, then the spiritual elevation of being able to do it. At which time in history that fell away and why it changed, I'm not exactly sure. There could be other reasons that it changed, I'm not familiar with that. But you're absolutely right. Initially, when Hashem appears to Moses, when God appears to, to Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, before he starts speaking to him, the first thing he says is, take your shoes off your feet. You want to speak to me? Move up into my world. Amazingly, when God appears to Joshua, he says, take off your shoe, not shoes. So the, the Malbim points out, Moshe Rabbeinu's level was much higher. He could take off his shoes completely and flip into... Yeshua still remained with one foot in each world. One in the higher world, one in the lower world. He was the Talmud, the disciple, the bridge between him and us. So that's already at that level. Yeah, the last point. Okay, so this was a basic introduction. I think I have a cassette somewhere, or CD, called Vegetarianism and Jewish Eating, which I think through goes, goes through most of the... Stuff we discussed, and you could probably download it, those of you interested. I think we're on the web somewhere, on 613.org or on Simple to Remember. You can download that thing and listen for free on the web. But I think it goes through more or less what we discussed this evening. Okay. I'm not vegetarian, no. I don't happen to like eating um, a lot of meat, but... uh,